Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's the Spring Pledge Drive, and all this week we are doing best of Access Utah. We're reaching into the archives, pulling out uh, some of the episodes we consider to be our best, and uh, we are looking for your pledge of support for Access Utah and for Utah Public Radio. And today's theme is Pulitzer Prizes. All last year, I think amounting to about 13 programs, some great programs, we participated in something called the Pulitzer Prizes Centennial Campfires Initiative, partnership with Utah Humanities, Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. And uh, we're going to hear excerpts from uh, programs titled The Art and Cultural Impact of Political Cartoons, We'll hear from Pulitzer Prize-winning composer John Luther Adams. Uh, we will uh, hear from Pulitzer-winning reporter Ken Armstrong, who uh, won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting for, quote, a startling examination expose of law enforcement's enduring failures to investigate reports of rape properly and to comprehend the traumatic effects on its victims. And we'll hear from historian and law professor Annette Gordon-Reed. Her uh, book, uh, co-authored book, is Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination. And uh, we bring in with us uh, Cynthia Buckingham, Executive Director of Utah Humanities. Uh, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Uh, so uh, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about this uh, this uh, this partnership, this effort from the Pulitzer Prize uh, uh, committee, I guess, Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative. 2016 was the was the centennial, I guess. Exactly. And state humanities councils had a wonderful opportunity to join with the Pulitzer Committee in celebrating what journalism and great writing does for this country. We were delighted to work with Utah Public Radio to make sure that the word got out and to take advantage of your skill, Tom, in doing wonderful conversations with interesting people. And we had some great conversations. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I guess if you win the Pulitzer, you got to be doing something right, and so <laughs> you're on the ball and, uh, and uh, make for a great guest. Um, so this is an example of, of uh, partnership, and I guess the, you know, that's what you do there at Utah Humanities, what we try to do. We were able to partner up uh, also with Salt Lake Tribune KCPW, and that's what we're trying to do with, uh, with, with listeners. It's, it's, it's a big community effort. Exactly. This is listener-supported radio, and we listen. We're all part of it. Your public radio is our voice. Uh, so the place to go is upr.org, upr.org, to pledge your support, upr.org. And we have a great opportunity uh, today. Icon Health and Fitness is doing a dollar-for-dollar dollar match uh, all day, and our goal for uh, this hour is $250. So you call and pledge uh, $10 a month, say, and uh, your uh, your pledge is doubled to $20 a month. It's uh, just that simple. upr.org, upr.org. So, uh, Cynthia, there at uh, Utah Humanities, um, I, I think you uh, you do fundraising as well. You and I'm 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 assuming you have the the magic words. <laughs> we do fundraising, but we don't have a platform like you do at Utah Public Radio. We love Utah Humanities loves partnering with you because you help us reach a statewide audience. You are able to to reach into every corner of this state and make sure that we all stay informed. Uh, this is not the only partnership, of course, we have with Utah Humanities. We have an upcoming project called Utah Works that we've been working on uh, in partnership with the Smithsonian Exhibition called uh, The Way We Worked, which is traveling to various museums. Right now it's at the Hiram City Museum. 
And so you're going to be hearing uh, some uh, four-minute pieces kind of modeled after StoryCorps on uh, people remembering uh, the way they worked. This is such a fun project. I'm excited that it's getting started. We opened the Museum on Main Street exhibit the way we worked in Hiram just last week, and it was a, it's been a resounding success already. Utah Humanities brings a traveling exhibition from the Smithsonian to Utah to hit five or six small or rural museums every three years. We're really happy that it's in Cache Valley this time. And the Utah Works uh, program is an addition. It's something we haven't tried before, and we're grateful that you had the wonderful idea. Uh, I think, uh, you know, public radio and, and humanities and arts are all kind of in the same boat, uh, perhaps threatened in the, in the new president's new budget. Uh, I guess that just uh, throws more <clears throat> responsibility and opportunity on, on patrons, on listeners. Absolutely. I think it's up to all of us to diversify our funding sources. But, of course, I continue to believe that public funding, as in government funding, is essential f- to maintain the culture of our society. So I certainly hope that the public funding continues through the federal government, as well as these efforts that we do day in and day out to make sure that that our constituents in the state also see the value of what we're doing. Let's jump in and hear uh, excerpts from a couple of episodes here. By the way, the, the place to go, upr.org, upr.org, and we're working on a listener challenge. And uh, you're up to $2,500. Your pledge is doubled by Icon Health and Fitness. So we hope you'll take advantage of that. And uh, love to see support for Access Utah. And we're celebrating our year-long partnership with the Utah Humanities Salt Lake Tribune and Casey Biddy. We call it the Pulitzer Prizes Centennial Campfires Initiative. And so from that series... Uh, we'll hear a cu- excerpts from a couple of programs. We'll do this back-to-back because we have short excerpts here. So first up is a very brief excerpt from a program from about a year ago with Salt Lake Tribune's Pat Bagley, Politico's Matt Worker. Worker is a Pulitzer Prize winner. Bagley is a Pulitzer finalist. And Jen Sorensen, and uh, she is winner of the Herblock Prize. We talked about Charlie Hebdo and uh, cartooning, the effect of cartooning. And uh, then we'll hear a brief excerpt from conversation with a Pulitzer Prize-winning composer, John Luther Adams. So let's hear these. I want to ask each of you about some specific cartoons. I'll start with this with Matt Bagley. Um, you've developed a, an iconic state legislator. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about how that happened and, uh, and what you're saying there. Oh, you know, I went up to the legislature and I noticed that all these people kind of had a certain look to them. Um, and it was that well-fed Nordic look, you know, a little overweight, a little chubby, uh, probably a little balding on top. And, you know, over the years, this little character eventually evolved into, you know, the one that you recognize now. He's got the big lips, and um, he's kind of plump. And, uh, and the great thing about that character is I can put him in a cartoon, and people know immediately who I'm talking about. I, I don't have to write the legislature on him, you know, which is really hard to do because it's a long word. And, and so this character kind of fits the bill. Um, and uh, sometimes that legislator is uh, packing heat, carrying a gun, for example. You're, you're oh, able he's to... always packing yeah. heat. They're always <laughs> packing heat. <laughs> I've got to tell you, the last night I spoke to a, 
Oh, it was the hospitality group here in Salt Lake City, but they invited oh, about half of the legislature. And all I got to say is, it was a tough crowd. They didn't think it was very funny. <laughs> oh, really? They did. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mm-hmm. thought, man, you know, laugh at yourselves, but uh-uh, uh-uh. Yeah. they were not having it. Uh, one of your recent cartoons uh, features that legislator. It's things that prefer the dark. You have a Dracula. You've got a robber. You've got a cockroach, and then. And then a legislator. You're, you're referring to uh, the closed caucuses, especially the Republican side. Well, yeah. I mean, the Republicans here have got a super majority. Um, I, I think 80% of the legislators are Republican. And so they have their caucuses. It's a closed door caucus, and they can actually decide which laws are going to pass and the wording of the laws without any public input. Um, and that's pretty outrageous. And they prefer it that way. They don't want. They don't want people to know what's going to happen before before it happens. This piece was ex- was inspired by my experiences in Alaska. Um, it actually began on the banks of the Yukon River when I was camped uh, alone, waiting for the ice to go out one year. Um, and um, I wanted to evoke in music something of that uh, transpersonal purifying. Uh, violence of of nature, you know that feeling that the world is so much bigger and more powerful than we can understand, um, and our presence is is somehow essential and at the same time insignificant, inconsequential. Anyway, so all these big ideas and this big um, extended piece, uh, inspired by the big world, to be heard in the small world, <laughs> inside mm-hmm. a concert hall. Right. In fact, it depends on the four walls and the floor and the ceiling of a concert hall to kind of overwhelm us and immerse us in this this um, this un- envelope of, of broadband noise. So anyway, I, I, I went to this performance in the Antiborigo Desert, uh, a group in Southern California, um, students of my friend Stephen Schick, the great percussionist, gave a performance out of the desert. And I settled in to experience my big, powerful piece in this big, powerful landscape. And within a few minutes, I was chastened, humbled, and provoked. Um, Here was this big noise that I thought I had made. And out there in the real world, in the big world, uh, uh, most of it just blew away in the wind. So that was my aha moment uh, when I finally realized, after 40 years of work, that, oh, Maybe it's time to to make music that's intended from the get-go to be heard outdoors. Mm. The result was Inuxuit, uh, the, the piece for up to 99 percussionists. And I've since done um, two or three other pieces, and I think this is going to be a continuing um, concern. It's not the only thing I'm doing, but I'm, I love working outdoors. Could you tell me a little bit about Inuksuit? Uh, what, what, uh, what, first of all, what does, what does that word mean? Yeah, Inuksuit, um, Inuksuit are the stone figures, the stone sentinels, the sculptures, if you will, that the Inuit people have created uh, in the Arctic uh, all, all around the world, at the top of the world, for countless centuries. Uh, the greatest flowering of them is in uh, the Canadian Arctic. And literally, more or less literally, translated from the Inuktitut, 
the word means to act in the capacity of the human. So what that suggests is that these figures are markers of human presence in what appears to be a big, empty, lonely landscape. And um, so I took that as my point of departure for this first work um, to be performed outdoors. And I imagined each of the musicians up to 99 as a singular presence in that vast landscape. There's no concerted playing. Everybody is a soul. Each one of the musicians has a unique part. And I imagine the same thing for the listeners. Um, This is a piece that um, is so big that it may not be possible for you to hear all of it at once. And there is no best seat in the house from which to hear Inuxilit. You can sit in one place and burrow in and let the music float and revolve and expand around you, or you can follow your ears and and walk. And um, everyone's experience of the music is unique. So I, in my misanthropic (laughs) Alaskan way, imagined that this was a piece that was all about solitude. Uh, Well, the trick on me, it turned out that it's a piece that's all about community. Uh, From the shared experience of all these solitary performers and listeners emerges this extraordinary sense of being in something together, being part of a community that is larger than we are. You're listening to Access Utah. We just heard there from Pulitzer Prize winning composer John Luther Adams. Very interesting uh, composer. I urge you to check out his music. It's, uh, it's quite beautiful. Uh, such compositions as Become Ocean and Inuksuit. We just talked about that. Uh, an outdoor work for up to 99 percussionists. Um, and we talked about political art versus art, listeners' interpretation of his works and composing music meant to be performed outdoors. And uh, just before that, and a kind of an awkward transition, apologize for that, we went straight from the uh, political cartoonists to the uh, uh, to our composer. But some very interesting uh, conversations. Upcoming, we're going to celebrate more uh, Pulitzer episodes. Uh, we uh, took part uh, last year in the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative, along with Utah Humanities, and we're going to be hearing from uh, Pulitzer-winning reporter Ken Armstrong, who um, exposed law enforcement's enduring failures to investigate reports of rape properly and to comprehend the traumatic effects on its victims. And uh, later in the hour, we're going to hear from historian Annette Gordon-Reed. She's co-author of the book Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination. We have with us Cynthia Buckingham, Executive Director of Utah Humanities, and uh, we're celebrating this uh, Pulitzer uh, Prizes initiative. Uh, some uh, very, Cynthia, very interesting. We, Of course, we know there are Pulitzer Prize-winning reporters, Pulitzer Prizes for books. We at uh, here at the Axis Utah learned that they're, they give out uh, prizes for for classical music. We just heard from John Luther Adams for poetry. We we talked with Gregory Pardlow, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, poet. There's a broad range of prizes. Yes, and I think that you tapped that in your series of conversations with Pulitzer winners. Uh, I want to come back to your conversation with Bagley, the idea of political cartooning. His 
point that we need to be able to look at and even laugh at ourselves is so important. I mean, he does it with humor, which helps, but the idea that we need to see through someone else's eyes is a concept that's very important to civil conversation. I think the civil conversation, understanding what's going on in our neighborhoods and how we can approach these issues or problems is core to what we do at Utah Humanities and core to what you do at Utah Public Radio. Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? It becomes more important uh, by the day, right, with with our current uh, climate. Right. We don't get very far by just shouting at each other or refusing to speak to one another. So our job, as I see it, is to bring people together who have different backgrounds, different perspectives, and think. Um, our board chair says our job at Utah Humanities is to encourage people to rethink, and I just love that concept. And uh, I was struck by, again, by hearing again from John Luther Adams, uh, maybe a little humility on the part of each of us would be would be uh, in order. I, he said he, he took this piece, it was a big piece, he took it outdoors, and he was immediately humbled because it was just swallowed up in the outdoors. Another wonderful concept, humility and empathy. I think we, we get both out of talking with other people, and, and, that's, and both are what the humanities bring us to as individuals. And the place to support this uh, kind of programming is upr.org. Go to upr.org. By the way, there you can see all of our thank you gifts. We have a new uh, UPR mug, which has a beautiful scene from Wayne County, um, uh, painted uh, by our artist who won our prize. So that's the UPR mug. That's uh, $5 a month. By the way, uh, right now, until this is exhausted, you will have that doubled. If you pledge $5 a month, it becomes $10 a month, courtesy of Icon Health and Fitness, because we have a dollar-for-dollar match up to $2,500. Hope you take advantage of that. UPR.org is the place to go. UPR.org. Cynthia Buckingham, we're going to be hearing from a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter. That's important, of course, uh, the the reporting that uh, goes on, and... uh, and uh, newspapers are sort of hemorrhaging cash. Uh, they're they're needing uh, help as well. It seems like our institutions are really needing uh, more and more support these days. Well, I think we as citizens take things for granted far too easily, and public radio and newspapers are just one exa- one symptom. Um, we were very proud of this partnership with Utah Public Radio, KCPW, and the Tribune because it allowed the four of us to really play off each other's uh, strengths, reaching an audience around the state and making sure that important issues come to people's attention in whatever format uh, people tend to get their news, including social media. And the place to support this, uh, the public radio, is upr.org. We do, uh, we do reach out, we do partner where we can, and we're very proud of that partnership as well with Utah Humanities and Salt Lake Tribune KCPW. And we look for uh, further partnerships. We, ta- we mentioned the Utah Works, which is a series of uh, radio features you'll be hearing uh, coming up in just uh, starting in just a couple of weeks. Uh, so upr.org is the place to support this kind of programming, upr.org. We have with us Cynthia Buckingham, Executive Director of Utah Humanities. Let's take a break. When we come back, we will hear an excerpt from our conversation from last year with uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Ken Armstrong. And uh, he, uh, along with uh, a fellow reporter, uh, Christian Miller from ProPublica, won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting for an expose of law enforcement's enduring failures to investigate reports of rape properly. That's a quotation from the Pulitzer Committee. More following this break.
This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Leaders are learners. While visiting a large U.S. company this summer, I got in the elevator with a CEO. Now, this man makes more money in six months than I will make in my lifetime. He recognized me from a presentation I'd given and asked, what are you reading this summer? This leader reads a book a week, three newspapers a day. He is famous for his learning habits. So ask yourself, what are you reading? What are your learning habits? You cannot know the value of knowledge until you have it. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU John M. Huntsman School of Business One-Year Master of Business Administration, specializing in strategic business development and value creation, business analytics, and finance. Details at huntsman.usu.edu MBA. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Devour Utah, a monthly magazine devoted to covering Utah's dining and drink scene with a spotlight on cooking, local happenings, and libations. Available at newsstands or online at devourutah.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're doing Best of Access Utah all this week. Our theme today is our partnership with Utah Humanities, KCPW, and Salt Lake Tribune from last year. Um, uh, it's uh, the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative, and we uh, broadcast some 13 uh, programs, uh, episodes, with Pulitzer Prize winners. And so this produced some great radio. Hope you enjoyed it. We're revisiting some of that today, and we have with us uh, Cynthia Buckingham, Executive Director of Utah Humanities. All of this, of course, is in service of raising money to pay for programs here on Utah Public Radio. Good news is uh, today we have a dollar-for-dollar dollar match all through the day until this is uh, this is exhausted. It's uh, $2,500 from Icon Health and Fitness, and they will match dollar-for-dollar dollar whatever your uh, pledge is. So we appreciate the good folks at Icon, and we appreciate you. And we want to thank uh, a few people. Um, we thank Nancy Sassano, who has uh, uh, pledged to her support. Thank you. Nancy is a longtime member of Utah Public Radio. Uh, Peggy Newber, I um, hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, Peggy uh, has supported us as well. And uh, we received in uh, this, just this hour, a uh, 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 pledge from Cassidy and Renee Bromley Real from Virgin. So thanks for pledging your support from uh, Virgin. And uh, this from last evening. So we uh, yesterday, Cynthia, we had some fun. We uh, highlighted some fun episodes. And we uh, highlighted an episode called What's in a Name, where we talked uh, with uh, a lady whose master's thesis was titled, um, My Name is Ray Lynn, uh, Distinctive Mormon Naming Practices. And so we talked about what's in a name and what's in your name and how did you come to name your kids. And uh, Kevin and Terry Rhodes from Newton uh, donated last night during the rebroadcast of Access Utah. They said they loved the last hour of the uh, programming on children's names. And their children's names are Zeke, Asia, Zane, Zach, and Ansel. So uh, that's uh, that sounds distinctive. <laughs> Thank you uh, to uh, Kevin and Terry Rhodes and their family from Newton for uh, pledging uh, their support. The place to go is upr.org, upr.org. Uh, it's a broad range of programming here at Utah Public Radio. Cynthia Buckingham, a broad range of programming there at uh, Utah Humanities as well. Well, we've talked about a couple of the partnerships that Utah Humanities has with UPR, including the Pulitzer Centennial and Utah Works, the stories that you're gathering. But we also have UPR to thank for the longstanding success of our Beehive Archive 
program, uh, which is a two-minute look at little-known aspects of Utah history. Those are little tidbits. Sometimes they're fun as well, and we thank you for continuing to give that a statewide audience week after week. Yeah, Megan Van Frank does a great job with that, and that's uh, it's 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 always fascinating. Uh, in fact, when I'd, I was uh, with Megan at the opening of that uh, Smithsonian ex- exhibition in Hiram, she asked me what my favorite Beehive Archive episode was, and that's, that's easy. It still sticks in my brain. A uh, young Utah man became driver and assistant to Trotsky in Mexico. And he, I didn't hear that one. <laughs> yeah, and he, and he was, you know, he was around uh, uh, pretty close by when Trotsky was assassinated. Uh, so that, you know, who knew these, and that's the reason, right? That's the reason we have the program, uh, these fascinating uh, tidbits of history. Megan calls it all of the history and none of the dust. And none of the dust. <laughs> that's right. But, but this wonderful research and the writing and these lovely little tidbits that enrich all our lives would not be known without a mechanism like Utah Public Radio and KCPW, which partners with us as well to broadcast those episodes. And we partner with KCPW and Salt Lake Tribune to bring you behind the headlines. You'll hear that tomorrow as well. So these partnerships do matter and are worth supporting. Uh, Won't you add yourself to this partnership mix and have your money doubled? Uh, by going to upr.org, upr.org, and pledging your support, upr.org. Well, let's uh, hear some more. Um, We will uh, hear next uh, an excerpt from an episode from November of last year. This is part of the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative, and uh, we talked with uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Ken Armstrong. Believable story of rape. That's the title in the Marshall Project. The uh, This American Life titled it Anatomy of Doubt. Just parenthetically, before we get into this, uh, just some startling reporting here. Um, what was it like to work with This American Life? It was eye-opening. Um, I had never um, worked um, in radio before. Um, I had never done a story with them. And they were fabulous. They were so great to work with. And what struck me was how differently they do things. Uh, When it came time to write the story, they do it collectively, communally, where you will have six to eight people sitting around a table, each person with a laptop open, each person with the same document open in edit mode. And everybody is welcome to, to write into the script as you're going along. Um, in the print world, we don't do that. It's a very individual enterprise where you're writing the story, then you turn it over to an editor and it gets edited, but you never feel like you're, you're forfeiting control of it. Um, radio, at least at This American Life, they, they want to write it as a collective, as a group. And it worked beautifully. Um, you know, it was a certain, there was a certain amount of a leap of faith you know, in the process, and Ira Glass had warned me about that prior to us going into the story, saying you have to buy into this. Um, but if you can, I think you'll find that this is um, really something different and effective, and it was. The piece originally aired, I think, February of this year. Um, and a, a plug for our audience, a reminder, This American Life is heard on Utah Public Radio Saturday mornings at 11. Um, so you, you begin uh, th- this piece, uh, which you title An Unbelievable Story of Rape, with a young woman, 18 years old, 
Her name is Marie, been in foster homes most of her, her life. She reports a rape, but very soon uh, doubts come up, including among her, uh, you could call them two foster mothers. That's right. Um, immediately, um, with, with both of her, her more recent foster mothers, the doubts set in from the moment they hear the news. And it's based upon the way in which Marie reacts to having been hurt. Um, they find it puzzling. Um, her affect is flat. She's emotionless. Um, she's telling a lot of different people about having been raped, which they think is curious because they believe this is something that you would hold privately or, or share with as few people as possible. Um, her, her reaction time and again surprises them. She goes shopping with one of the foster mothers to replace the bedding um, that she had because the police had seized um, her comforter and sheets and everything as potential evidence in the case that she has to replace it. When they go shopping, she wants to find the same exact set. And one of her foster mothers can't understand why. You know, she, she said, why would you want to be reminded of what happened? And Marie's reaction was simply, I like those sheets. Um, And it was just one example after another where people had conceptions about how a rape victim should act that didn't fit with the the way Marie acted. And because of that, doubts started and they spread and they reached the police department and the police department wound up going sideways with its investigation because it, it pursued those doubts instead of pursuing the evidence in the case. And, and in fact, Marie ends up confessing that she made it up. That's right. Um, the, the police um, begin treating her as a suspect rather than as a victim, and they interrogate her you know, rather than interview her uh, three days after the rape was reported. And during the course of that interrogation, she recants. And she decides that she doesn't want to deal with this anymore. She shuts down emotionally. And she decides the easiest way to deal with this now is for me to take the story back and and just try to walk away. And that's what she does. So she says, okay, um, it didn't happen. I wasn't really raped. And after she does that, she winds up being charged um, with filing a false police report. Um, And she entered into a plea deal um, under which she had to pay $500. She had to get counseling for a year, not for having been raped, but for having lied about it. Um, So she she went from being a rape victim to a a criminal defendant. Now, this is fairly unusual to be, be, isn't it, to be charged with false report, or, or is it unusual? It is unusual. It's not unheard of. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, you can even find a, a few other instances nationally where people have been charged and it was subsequently discovered that they really were raped. Um, that's happened in Wisconsin. It also happened in Pennsylvania. Um, not saying it's common, um, but it is something where her case is not necessarily unique. You write in the in the piece, uh, the fear of false rape accusations has a long history in the legal system. You go back to the 1600s, uh, England's Chief Justice Matthew Hale 
quoting here, warned that rape is, quote, an accusation easily uh, to be made and hard to be proved and harder to be defended by the party accused. But you go on to say the FBI figures show police annually declare about 5% of rape cases unfounded or baseless. It's uh, uh, false rape accusations are, are quite rare. They are, and, and it's something where nobody has a definitive statistic on it, because how could they, right? How, how can anyone possibly know how many reports are true and how many are, are false? Um, but the studies that have been done generally fall in the neighborhood of believing that anywhere from 2 to 8% um, of reports um, are false. Now, in your reporting, um, and you can find this uh, on the website, bikenarmstrong.com, one place that you can go to the Marshall Project as well, um, you do parallel reporting um, of a, a suspected serial rapist. A woman reports a rape in, I think it's Golden, Colorado. A detective, female detective, is is on the on the, on the case. Um, tell me a little bit about that case. Yeah, one of the things that um, appealed to us about writing about this case was that it provided an opportunity to show police work in, in different settings and with different approaches. Um, all that went wrong in Linwood, Washington, um, where Marie was not believed, where she was charged, it went right in Colorado, um, where you had multiple police departments who, um, or that, that worked together to, to solve the case of a serial rapist, a serial rapist who, it turned out, was the same man who had raped Marie in Washington. Um, they just did everything right. They pursued every lead. They worked together. Um, when they had um, skepticism, doubts, a sense of wonder about whether or not um, someone had actually been raped, they didn't allow that to derail the investigation. They just continued to pursue the evidence. And because of the work that was done there in, in Golden and in Westminster um, in Aurora with the, the State uh, Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, all of these agencies were working together. They were able to, to chase down uh, Mark O'Leary, the serial rapist, and after they arrested him, they found in his uh, computer uh, materials um, photographs proving that he had also raped Marie in Linwood, Washington. So that's how Marie wound up being vindicated. It was because of the police work that was done in Colorado. One of the problems, one of the uh, sources of doubt for some of the people there in Washington was details in the case, right? Details which proved to, to, to be the exact M.O. of the, of, of the rapist. Uh, that's right. It, it, you know, I think a lot of times you know, we, we have preconceptions about how trauma will impact people. We also have preconceptions about what a crime looks like. One of the foster mothers, in, in the case in Linwood, the rapist used the victim's own shoelaces to tie her up, and that just seemed unlikely to one of the foster moms. You know, her, she, she said she was a big Law & Order fan, and it just it, the scene didn't feel right. The story that Marie was telling didn't sound right. It didn't fit with what she believed a, a rape crime scene 
would look like, and, and she had trouble believing that a rapist wouldn't bring uh, something stronger to tie somebody up with, you know, whether it's rope or bring handcuffs or whatever the case might be. So, you know, those doubts traced to so many different things. Um, it, was, it was not just her affect, but it was also the, the story she told of how the rape had occurred. You're listening to Access Utah, and that's a, just a portion of a conversation with Ken Armstrong, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, uh, who won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize, along with Christian Miller from ProPublica for explanatory reporting. Ken Armstrong uh, previously won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting, um, and that was a very interesting investigation, investigation of how little-known governmental body in Washington State moved vulnerable patients from safer pain control medication to methadone, a cheaper but more dangerous drug. Um, so uh, we are celebrating our uh, year-long um, partnership with Utah Humanities, Salt Lake Tribune, and KCBW called the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative. We have with us uh, on the line uh, Executive Director of Utah Humanities, Cynthia Buckingham. That's just, uh, it, it's upsetting to hear, uh, you know, reporting like that, but it's very necessary for our society, and, and it's, it's good, I think, that... Uh, uh, this kind of reporting is is rewarded with the Pulitzer Prize. Boy, that excerpt was powerful, Tom, and it just reminds us how important independent journalistic voices are and and voices that are able to take the time to truly investigate an issue. It, it, I think we should think more often about where we get our news and how we get our news, which I guess is one reason why I really appreciate your locally produced programs. Helps us to get our local news in a way that we can participate. We can understand what's going on around us. And that's something that we uh, very much uh, put emphasis on. And uh, I guess a reminder that local programming is the most expensive programming because we can't share the cost across the, the nationwide NPR system. We have to bear that cost uh, right here at Utah Public Radio. And so we're turning to you and uh, asking you not to bear that entire cost, but to, uh, to, to uh, you know, shoulder just a little bit of that. And, uh, you know, you can take credit for it as well uh, when you pledge your support to upr.org. Upr.org is a place to go, upr.org. And a reminder that until this money is exhausted, uh, it's up to $2,500. Uh, today, Icon Health and Fitness will match your pledge. So if you pledge $100, then $200 comes to Utah Public Radio. And that's a wonderful thing, thanks to Icon Health and Fitness. I uh, want to acknowledge a couple of more listeners. So we had uh, Brad uh, Cole and Vicki Rosen, who have uh, supported, renewed their membership to Utah Public Radio. Thank you so much. And Joyce Kincaid has uh, pledged uh, her support uh, this hour. Uh, Joyce Kincaid, by the way, uh, has been a guest on Access Utah. We just uh, talked with her and her co-authors not too long ago on a book called Farm, a Multimodal Reader with uh, Student uh, Readings. Uh, so uh, some great support coming in. Keep that coming, and we'd love to hear from you, upr.org, uh, upr.org. Uh, coming up, we're going to go to history. And, of course, Cynthia Buckingham, uh, history's right up your alley, right, with Utah Humanities? Exactly. We love um, portraying history from around the world, from around the country, and locally. It, it helps us understand today to know more about history.
We're going to be talking with uh, Pulitzer winner uh, Annette Gordon-Reed. Uh, she co-authored the book Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination. That'll be coming up uh, uh, shortly. Uh, so let's take another break. When we come back, uh, we will have that excerpt from our conversation with Annette Gordon-Reed. And we'll have more with Cynthia Buckingham from Utah Humanities. And we hope to hear from you with your pledge of support now to UPR.org. That's UPR.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley Center for the Arts presenting The Hillbenders, Tommy, a Bluegrass Opry, a full-length bluegrass tribute featuring banjo, dobro, mandolin, bass, and guitar to The Who's Tommy, Tuesday, April 11th at 7.30 p.m. Details at cacharts.org. Set sail for the Caribbean with us on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. We'll visit Kingston Harbor and Montego Bay and dance to the pulsing tropical beat of reggae and other island styles. One love, one I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Jamaica, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's the best of Access Utah. We uh, have chosen some of the episodes we consider to be our best, and uh, we are uh, celebrating Access Utah. And uh, today, the theme is Pulitzer Prize winners. Uh, through 2016, we participated, uh, partnered up with Utah Humanities, Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW to participate in an initiative called the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial uh, Campfires Initiative, and uh, that produced some great episodes. We uh, heard uh, from, we've just heard from a Pulitzer uh, Prize winner reporter, um, Ken Armstrong. We also talked with uh, another reporter, uh, Joby Warwick. His book is Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS. Very important topic, of course. We uh, talked with uh, the author of a book on Margaret Fuller. Um, T.J. Stiles joined us to talk about his book on Custer, Custer's Trials, A Life on the Frontier of New America. I learned a lot about Custer I didn't know. And uh, we learned about uh, some uh, early 20th century uh, history, um, or mid-20th century history, Thurgood Marshall. And uh, the book uh, was about his uh, going to the South and uh, taking on some very uh, dangerous cases. Uh, We also... uh, um, uh, talked with uh, historian Stephen Greenblatt. Uh, the list goes on and on. We've talked with poets and with composers and historians and reporters, and uh, we very much appreciate uh, this partnership. Uh, Cynthia Buckingham from Utah Humanities uh, joins us. Uh, Cynthia, we, we thank you for bringing this uh, partnership to us. It's produced some uh, great radio. It has indeed, and, and some very, very important ideas. When we think about dealing with ISIS, when we think about the history of civil rights in this country, those are issues that all of us need to give thought to as as residents. And locally supported radio, listener supported radio, gives us the opportunity to hear perspectives that we might not normally run into. And the biggest uh, the biggest block of our funding comes directly from you, and uh, we appreciate that. And you can uh, keep that support coming. 
Uh, perhaps you're a potential new member of Utah Public Radio. What a great time to get on board. You can support great programming like the, the, the programs we've been hearing excerpts from. UPR.org is the place to go. UPR.org and your money until this money is gone is matched by Icon Health and Fitness. Up to $2,500. Uh, so you pledge $100 then $200 comes to Utah Public Radio. When you pledge right now to UPR.org. UPR.org. Up until up until $2,500. We uh, just got a, a pledge from our friend Stephen McIntyre, uh, who lives uh, in Arizona, very close to Utah. He says he came from New York City, signal for Santa Clara Strong. He has a choice of public radio, and he prefers UPR. So thanks for that, Steve. Appreciate appreciate that uh, support. Tell us your story. Tell us your UPR story when when you uh, when you pledge. Uh, Cynthia, I wonder what. Uh, it's probably similar remarks. People who who contribute to Utah Humanities uh, probably similar stories as the people who contribute to public radio. I agree. I agree. Uh, our mission is to empower Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. And we say improve their communities because we're looking at local initiatives. And people really appreciate the ability to think through local concerns and bring bring expert minds to those concerns, which is exactly what you do with public radio, Tom. You bring people in who can who can talk about the issues of our day or just make us think in a different way, learn something new. And uh, we continue to strive to do that and, uh, you know, tell us how we're doing. And if, if there are adjustments that need to be made, uh, certainly uh, you pledge your support and uh, you have a, a very big voice as a member to uh, tell us uh, adjustments that you feel need to be made or uh, tell us we're on the right track and uh, that you want to support this financially. place to go is upr.org, upr.org. And uh, well, I'm thanking you in advance. So we're going to uh, go to our last segment for the, uh, the hour. And we talked with uh, law professor and historian Annette Gordon-Reed as a part of the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative. Uh, she is co-author of a very interesting book called Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination. Uh, we're going to hear an expert right now. Uh, let me start with uh, a question about the, the stakes of uh, today's uh, discussion. seems like at least this is my characterization, it seems to be higher stakes with Jefferson than with many of the founding fathers. All sides want to claim him, and the criticism is, is of higher stakes as well. Do you agree with that characterization, and if so, why? I would say so. Uh, I think that people look to Jefferson because of the Declaration of Independence. It's considered to be America's, America's creed, and the words that mean so much to us, the famous preamble about, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, and this is how we see ourselves, and so he is held to a very, very high standard. Um, and you know, he has a home Monticello that's on the money, uh, so to speak, on the nickel. And he is a part of our lives on a daily day, on a on a daily basis, but also once a year when we celebrate um, American independence. So he is, of all the figures uh, of, I think, of founding fathers, he's the one who people look to the most and have the most identification with, but at the same time, who have some of the biggest arguments with, because he was the Declaration, but he also was a slaveholder. So those two things are, are, are looked at and, and discussed, and people wonder about him. There are many contradictions. Some people charge him with hypocrisy. You know, he was a revolutionary Republican, small r, also a slaveholder, many other uh, contradictions. 
But you say in the book, mm-hmm. this, this charge of hypocrisy is too shallow. It, and you want to say because it's far too easy on his times, on his fellow white Americans, and on all of us today. And I, I want to explore those as we go along. That's that on all of us today. Yes, yeah. I think that many of us have intellectual beliefs that we don't adhere to, that we don't have uh, either because of, of habits uh, of mind, because of other priorities. Uh, intellectual beliefs that we don't live up to, uh, and we don't really believe them. But for one reason or another, uh, the lack of, of willpower, uh, competing uh, concerns, uh, we don't live the way we say we think we ought to live. And so, and I think the same thing is true of Jefferson, and certainly he was not on, on issues of slavery, on issues of race, when you're talking about his fellow Virginians, he was some. He was in the middle. I mean, there were people who didn't believe that slavery was wrong, and never questioned it. Uh, he, as a Virginian, did question it. Did believe slavery was wrong, but did not go the extra step and devote his life to eradicating it. And then there were a few people who did free their slaves uh, and who worked for emancipation. But those were a very, very tiny number of people, and most of them were not in Virginia. So. What we're trying to do in this book is to try to capture Jefferson as he saw himself, not just use the book as a way of sort of you know, taking out all of our own aggressions on Jefferson and sort of showing how good we are uh, as compared to him, but actually figure out who this person was, who had his hand in so many different aspects of American life. So we wanted a fresh sort of reboot, uh, sort of a, a fresh look at this person. Uh, I want to have you talk about the the title of, of the book, Most Blessed of the uh, Patriarchs. This uh, comes from a letter, interestingly, to Angelica Schuyler Church, who's a sister-in-law to Hamilton, his great rival. Yes, yes. And when we started writing this book, we had no idea that people would ever have any occasion to know who Angelica Schuyler Church was. But, of course, she's one of the Schuyler sisters uh, from the, the hit musical Hamilton. And, uh, and we started writing this way before the musical you know, opened, uh, but yes, he's writing to her after he has been defeated in the cabinet battles that he had with Angelica's uh, brother-in-law, Alexander Hamilton. And he's telling her about going back to Monticello and how he's looking forward to it. And he says at one point that if his daughters come to live near him and are settled with husbands and you know a family, that he will consider himself as blessed as the most blessed of the patriarchs. So this is something he's calling himself. We wanted to make sure, uh, we put this in quotes on the book because we wanted to to let people know that we weren't calling him that. Uh, He was calling himself that. And in another letter, he describes himself as living at Monticello as uh, an an antediluvian patriarch, uh, living among his um, family and, and farm, um, like an antediluvian patriarch, and we thought, that's an interesting way to describe yourself, because he's also considered the apostle of liberty. He's also considered a Republican, a small r, uh, and by people who hated him at the time, a dangerous radical. Uh, well, patriarch conjures up an, you know, an image of ancient times, and here was a person who was supposed to be forward-thinking. How did he see himself as a patriarch? Uh, I should also say patriarch 
today is kind of a dirty word, uh, patriarchy. Uh, it's a word we're questioning. But he didn't question it. He thought patriarch, uh, himself as a patriarch, he could do this in a good way. Uh, he considered himself to be a benevolent patriarch to his immediate white family, to what he would have construed as a version of family, the enslaved people at, the, at Monticello, the sort of Roman notion of family, your entire household. And that's how he saw himself. And he didn't see this as, we might look at this and say, you know, come on, but he was actually serious. So there's an excerpt uh, from a conversation with the uh, historian Annette Gordon-Reed, her uh, book that she co-authored, Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination. By the way, you can find all of these conversations at our website, upr.org, um, and uh, just uh, click on Programs and then Access uh, Utah. And we'll likely uh, repeat uh, some of these programs uh, down the line, uh, broadcast them. Uh, you can go to upr.org, upr.org, and support this kind of programming. And we're celebrating this hour on Best of Access Utah for the Spring Pledge Drive, our Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative with Utah Humanities, Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. And we have with us for another couple of minutes Cynthia Buckingham, Executive Director of uh, Utah Humanities. Cynthia, I was thinking... Uh, we made reference there to Hamilton and, of course, the smash hit Broadway musical. And I was thinking about connections and, and, and the fact that programming like the programs we do can help us make connections in our personal life. Uh, I was benefited by hearing a, a piece on NPR. They were interviewing Ron Chernow. And uh, then they mentioned, and I didn't know that at the time, uh, so there's going to be a Broadway musical. And a hip-hop Broadway musical. And I thought, oh, great, you know, that's, uh, that's not going to work. Um, and uh, then, they, then they played a portion of n- uh, Not Giving Away My Shot. And I was hooked immediately. I thought, sign me up. I want to go see the musical. Uh, but I did what I'm sure uh, Ron Chernow would want me to do. I went out and bought his book, and I, you know, it's a thousand pages. I, I read it. Just, uh, and then I went and read his book on Washington. That's the kind of connections. And then my knowledge increased. And uh, and I felt enriched. Isn't it amazing how much that hip-hop musical has created interest in history and a, and a whole different understanding of history, of the conversations that were happening with, with Hamilton, with Jefferson, with those founding fathers. One of the things that I've appreciated most about your conversations with Pulitzer winners, Tom, is that they are challenging. Um, I, I was struck by Annette Reed saying that we, many of us, have intellectual beliefs we don't live up to. That idea of exploring our values, our own values in societies, um, that it's a lifelong endeavor. And those are the values that people are thinking about as a result of learning about Hamilton. It does. All come around in a circle, doesn't it? It it really does. It really does. The place to support this kind of programming is upr.org. Go to our website, upr.org, and uh, we would appreciate your pledge right now. I'd appreciate, personally, your pledge in support of Access Utah. Uh, upr.org is the place to go, upr.org, and uh, up until $2,500, your pledge is doubled today by Icon Health and uh, and Fitness. We're reaching uh, the end of our uh, hour. Uh, Cynthia Buckingham, Executive Director of Utah Humanities, uh, thank you so much. Thank you for the good work you do, and thank you for the partnerships. 
I am proud to support public radio, Tom, and it reminds me of one of my very favorite quotes of Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said, I like paying taxes. With them, I buy civilization. And I feel like our support of listener-supported radio is important to buy civilization. A place to go to, uh, to pledge your support is upr.org, upr.org. Uh, Cynthia, thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. And uh, thanks for your support. Appreciate uh, all of you who have pledged. And if you haven't yet, uh, now's the time to do so. We appreciate you. I'm thanking you in advance. Go to upr.org. And thanks so much for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Ridgefield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.